Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Presumption of Innocence, a podcast brought to you by the White Collar Criminal Defense and Regulatory Compliance Practice at Fox Rothschild. My name is Matt Adams, and I'm one of the co-chairs of the practice group. And today I have the distinct pleasure of being joined by the other Matt, my co-chair of the practice, Matt Lee. Uh, Matt is a partner out of our Philadelphia office and a former U.S. Department of Justice trial attorney. His practice focuses on tax, money laundering, healthcare, securities, public corruption, antitrust, uh, foreign corrupt practices acts, false claims act, and, and other fraud offenses. He's a frequent contributor to Law 360 on tax and financial crimes related matters and author of the Practicing Law Institute's Foreign Account Tax Compliance Act answer book. Matt, welcome to the Presumption of Innocence. You and I are going to be taking turns uh, co-hosting as we proceed down our new endeavor here. But today I have the pleasure of interviewing you uh, related to the 2021 Dirty Dozen list published by the IRS. Now, this this list is compiled annually and lists a variety of common scams that taxpayers may encounter anytime. But particularly during filing season. And as we're coming upon the 2021 tax year filing season in the next uh, few weeks and months, uh, people are going to be either preparing their returns or hiring someone to prepare their returns. And as a general matter, Matt, before we get into the specific expected trends over the next year or so, what are some of the big picture things you're seeing right now with IRS enforcement? Matt, thanks for uh, thanks for that great introduction. It's terrific to be here. The I, I see uh, over the last uh, eighteen months or so, I've witnessed I think two big trends that the IRS is really focused on. And the first is something that we all are have heard uh, and lived through, and that is, of course, the COVID nineteen pandemic. And the IRS, like lots of other law enforcement agencies, has uh, seen it. What I think is a terrific um, diversion of its resources toward fighting COVID-19 fraud in a variety of fronts. And that has taken the IRS away from its uh, sort of tr- its traditional enforcement agenda, which is focused on, you know, what you might think of as garden variety, tax evasion, tax fraud types of defenses, and really focused on going after fraudsters that are taking advantage of the significant amount of money that Congress has appropriated th- to, to throughout the entire economy to various sectors to help businesses and individuals um, you know, get through the pandemic, which we're all still living through. The other, in addition to COVID-19 fraud, the other big area I see for the IRS is cryptocurrency. Now, this is something that the IRS has been looking at for a number of years. Not this is not new, um, but with the uh, incredible increase in value of probably the most common cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, over the last two years or so, there's been a lot of interest among individuals in in getting involved in cryptocurrency investing in this sort of new asset class. And the IRS is, I think, laser focused on tax compliance. And by that, I mean, are individuals that own cryptocurrency and and engaging in cryptocurrency transactions, are they reporting those on their tax returns and are they paying taxes on that? 
and I think the IRS would say, if uh, we were interviewing uh, an IRS uh, representative, they would say that there is a significant compliance gap, meaning there are um, there's a big gap between the number of taxpayers that are engaged in cryptocurrency transactions uh, as compared to those that are actually reporting them on their tax return. So there's a lot of unaccounted for revenue that could come into the treasury um, that the IRS wants to go after and, and find these individuals that aren't properly reporting and paying taxes on their crypto investments. So, so Matt, I think you and I have both, both experienced and, and, and we've definitely done significant uh, speaking publicly about this very topic, but with the IRS focused so heavily on COVID-19 fraud and in particular joining these task forces that have seemed to pop up all over the country, uh, multidisciplinary ta task forces, does the IRS really have resources to go towards its bread and butter still, or is it is it sort of shifting its focus to combating COVID-19 entitlements or, or, or what have you, fraud? Um, and is that detracting in any way from its traditional tax enforcement uh, efforts? Well, I think the reality is that the IRS as a government agency has suffered from more than a decade of budget cuts from Congress that have really decimated this agency in many ways. There have been, there's been terrific um, uh, attrition in the form of retirements, individuals just leaving their employment at the IRS, and these positions are not being filled because the Congress has, has repeatedly, year after year after year, cut the IRS's budget. So we're really at a point now where this agency, uh, you know, which is, course, responsible for collecting, you know, all of the revenue <laughs> that's due uh, to be paid to the U.S. Treasury, which is not an insignificant task, uh, you know, has its, you know, its staffing levels are at some of it, uh, its lowest levels in, in more than a decade. And that's put a real strain on the IRS's ability to carry out its traditional enforcement uh, agenda. Now, that's starting to change. Congress is starting to put more money into the IRS. And in fact, the Biden administration is looking to significantly uh, increase the budget allocation for enforcement of the IRS. That remains to be seen how that plays out in the political process. But there does seem to be uh, a recognition on Congress that it is important to fund the IRS and to give the IRS the tools and the resources it needs to carry out its job uh, to make sure that, that we have a high voluntary tax compliance rate in this country. But in the face of all of that budget, there's budgetary cuts and loss of the workforce. One of the things that the IRS is doing, and I think is doing a good job of, is shifting to relying more on essentially, you know, technology to help it do its job. And by the technology, I re I'm referring to things like data analytics and artificial intelligence. The IRS at this point gets more data about the activities of taxpayers, not just domestically, but really around the globe, it's getting more data than it ever has in its history. And, it, and that data really you know, has, value, has valuable information in it. Um, and the IRS is, is, is working, you know, using technology to sort through that data to follow the money, which is something the IRS does and does quite well, to help generate leads and to build cases. So, it's a tale of declining resources on one hand, but really, I think, increased reliance and successfully so uh, reliance on um, 
using technology to help sort through data and to and to do things that frankly would take months if not years for for humans to do yeah and i think matt we've seen that in other spaces too like healthcare and certainly the covid-19 fraud area as well because it seems like the government is able to harness significant aspects of data um, with relative ease. Not only that, they they can almost um, do the sort of uh, ex juxtaposition exercise when when talking about things that they may have on file from, for example, a taxpayer versus what uh, might get submitted to the government in connection with a PPP loan application or something like that. So I think. From, a, from what I'm hearing from you, the trend with respect to tax enforcement really is modeling what we've seen in other spaces as well. So moving then directly to uh, the central focus of, of our conversation um, today, what exactly is the dirty dozen and, and, and why does it provide a, a sort of indicator, if you will, of IRS enforcement activity generally? So the Dirty Dozen has its origin a, a number of years ago. The IRS decided that it was going to publicize annually a list of some of the worst tax schemes, scams, frauds um, that are out there. And someone at the IRS came up with a catchy name, and they called it Dirty Dozen. And so every year now we have the IRS announcing to great fanfare the uh, components of the Dirty Dozen. And it, it is what it sounds like. It is the list of the top 12 or so worst scams that the IRS sees. Some of these scams are repeat offenders. You see them year after year. Others are new. The most recent Dirty Dozen has a lot of new stuff, has a lot of new um, new entrance, which we'll talk about, um, but it really is a summary of what the IRS sees as the worst uh, of the worst. And it is an indicator, I believe, it's an indicator of where the IRS has been focused its, its enforcement priorities in going after these, uh, these scams. Uh, it's also for education purposes. It's to educate taxpayers to watch out for these things, to, to be mindful that they could fall prey to some of these scams. Um, of which you know we'll talk about social media scams, phishing attacks, uh, phone calls, um, threatening to uh, arrest people if they don't pay their taxes, things like that. So it's really it's also meant to educate the public as well. I got one of those over the weekend, actually. The 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 phone call saying you know that you're you're going to be referred for criminal prosecution if you don't give your social security number immediately because you're delinquent in your taxes rest assured uh anyone that might be listening to the to this podcast that is not typically how the government conducts an investigation and certainly they don't ask you through an automated phone call what your social security number is a couple of new uh offices i've seen established in um in connection with IRS enforcement activities, Matt, and, and you've, you've highlighted for us from the outset sort of this contraction of uh, the, the IRS's sort of human resources, but we also see creation of new offices in the midst of harnessing this big data to create 21st century methods of enforcement. It seems like the IRS is starting to also reorganize itself in manners that uh, are, are 
intended to be potentially more efficient and bring some of this big data and modern enforcement techniques to bear. Could you talk to us a little bit about the newly established Office of Promoter Investigations and also the IRS Fraud Enforcement Office? Yeah, so both of those are recently re recently established, right? Yeah, so um, they were both uh, announced, um, unveiled, I guess, at really around the start of the pandemic. I don't think there was any uh, correlation. That just that was just the just when it happened. Uh, but both both of these offices were announced early on in 2020. The Fraud Enforcement Office is a really interesting one. Um, it's been it's it, the, the person who's running that office is is someone who had a long career working on the criminal side of the IRS. It was a, it's a, this individual was an IRS special agent, so he comes from a criminal background. And I think that really, if there's nothing else you need to know, it just gives you a sense of you know who's at the top of this new Fraud Enforcement Office. It's a criminal investigator, and the idea though is to uh, establish an office that is going to work collaboratively across all of the different divisions of the IRS. Of course, you've got the criminal side of the IRS, you've got the civil side of the IRS, which conducts audits of taxpayers, and then you really, the third sort of major area is the collection side of the IRS, and that's the, you know, that's where they collect the money. Those are the bill collectors. And the idea of the Fraud Enforcement Office is to oversee and ensure that there is exchange of information across all of these divisions uh, about fraudulent activities. Fraud is not just a criminal issue. It's, you know, there is civil fraud that, 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 that the, you know, the IRS can, can go after a taxpayer for committing fraud on a tax return civilly. It doesn't have to be a criminal charge. And the idea really behind this whole office is to raise the profile uh, and awareness of fraud. And also, I think really interestingly, this office is going to work with other law enforcement partners including like at the state level. So state revenue departments uh, where the IRS is already sharing some information, but it's gonna strengthen those relationships. And I look, you know, I think you'll see more information sharing between, yeah, <clears throat> excuse me, between the IRS and the um, and its state counterparts. The other big development um, in the form of a new uh, office at the IRS is, is Matt, is what you said is this promoter investigation coordinator. This is a newly created position um, in uh, February of 2020. And the, the idea here is to focus on what the IRS tr has traditionally called tax shelters. Promoters are the professionals that go out and sell these tax shelters. So promoters are oftentimes attorneys or accountants or other types of profession professionals that are marketing and selling these what the IRS would call fraudulent tax shelters to investors in two areas that um, this promoter investigation coordinator is focusing on uh, also show up on the dirty dozen. They're conservation easements, we'll talk about that in a moment, as well as micro captive insurance. I would say those are the two probably top tax shelters the IRS is focused on at this moment. A lot of resources going into both of those. We'll talk more about that uh, later, but. I think both of the establishment of these two offices really shows that the IRS is looking to step up its game, cracking down on fraud and cracking down on uh, tax shelters. And so, so when we dig into the, the 2021 Dirty Dozen list, I, it really can be un, unpacked topically. The way I see it, 
We have pandemic-related scams, which has really come as no surprise, uh, given what we've all been living through for the, la the better part of the last two years. Then per personal information cons, which seem to be uh, the traditional sort of identity theft types of crimes that we've we've seen for a while now. Um, some some with the IRS calls ruses focusing on unsuspecting victims, so sort of taking advantage of more, maybe the most vulnerable, and then schemes that persuade taxpayers into unscrupulous actions, sort of like what you were just talking about. So let's start with the pandemic-related scams as we unpack the 2021 Dirty Dozen list. And um, the, the IRS calls them uh, economic impact payment theft and unemployment fraud leading to inaccurate uh, taxpayer filings. Matt, talk for, for a bit about these types of common pandemic-related tax scams and with a particular focus on how they may sort of cross over into what we've seen and you and I have done a fair amount of um, talking about, which is the uh, issues involving COVID-19 economic impact theft. Yeah, so these are the very first two um, on the Dirty Dozen list. And I, I don't think the Dirty Dozen is um, set up in order of sort of num there's a number one or a number two, but these two are the first two. Um, and I don't think there's any, um, I, I don't think that's a coincidence. So economic payment theft, the e economic impact payments, these are the stimulus checks that Congress authorized early on in the pandemic and has been, re they've been reauthorized a number of times. These are the, the checks that have gone out across the United States uh, to you, to taxpayers uh, who, are, who qualify for these payments, these have amounted to billions and billions of dollars of government uh, spending. And not surprisingly, there's been a significant number of a significant amount of crime associated with these checks going in the mail from um, simply stealing checks out of the mailboxes to more advanced uh, identity theft uh, techniques to get, you know, for, through which fraudsters get their hands or try to get their hands on, um, on these, these checks. And again, there were multiple uh, iterations of these stimulus checks that have gone out over the last uh, 18 months. And it's a really, it's just an extraordinary amount of money. And it's no surprise when you're talking about that much money going out the door of the U.S. Treasury, there's no surprise that fraudsters uh, are attracted to that opportunity, um, and they've been successful. Uh, there's been, there's been uh, no doubt that they've been successful. The uh, corollary um, is, is uh, unemployment fraud. I mean, again, no surprise that um, unemployment rates have skyrocketed through the pandemic, and as a result, unemployment claims have similarly increased to almost unheard of levels over, over the last uh, almost two years. And uh, not surprisingly, there have been instances, many of them, of uh, fraudsters submitting false uh, unemployment, unemployment claims um, through identity theft, um, you know, as posing for someone, um, claiming to have lost their job and then getting their check. And then the individual, the, the, the actual person, um, at the end of the year gets a 1099 saying from their from their state or local municipality government saying we paid you unemployment compensation in, in x dollar amount 
course, they never got the checks, but they are getting a 1099. So these are just, these are two, this is really, these two I'd say are in the educational categories to educate taxpayers to be on the lookout uh, for these types of scams because they're really prevalent and, and frankly, they're not, they're not letting up. They're, they're, they're still out there. They're still continuing. Yeah, and I, I, I could just tell you from, from my experience on this side of the, uh, mostly dealing with PPP fraud cases uh, for the last couple of years now, um, there's always an interrelatedness to some of these tax uh, issues as well. And it, it seems like where, where you see one, you quite often see, see the other. And, um, and, and that's something I think we're going to continue to see now for the better part of the next decade in light of how, just how many trillions of dollars in stimulus money has been injected into the economy. Moving to sort of the the second topical area of the 2021 Dirty Dozen list, we have what the IRS refers to as personal information cons. And to me, this sounds like your classic identity theft. This is not something new, maybe exacerbated by the pandemic, Matt, but mostly uh, these are some scams that have been around for a long time. Talk to us a little bit about these. Yeah, Matt. So these are not really these these scams um, aren't anything new. It seems like they've accelerated or picked up in frequency during the pandemic, but they're but they they certainly predated the pandemic, and they range from social media uh, scams where you might um, someone might contact you through a Facebook page um, or a, another form of social media to try to trick you into submitting your personal information, your name, your address, your social security number, your date of birth, to get that critical information that can be then used uh, against you uh, in terms of submitting, for example, a tax return to the IRS and getting a refund. I mean, that's a very common identity theft uh, example that we've seen long long before the pandemic um, is the submission of uh, a tax return to get a, to get a refund while the unsuspecting taxpayer in question has no idea that the return had been even filed or the check had been issued. There are these phishing scams where uh, fraudsters will send an email uh, to, to, the, to an unsuspecting individual and it looks like a legitimate email. It might be coming from your employer or a close, you know, purportedly a close family friend asking for information when in fact the person behind that email is not uh, someone you work with, nor is it a close family friend or uh, or family member. It's in fact a fraudster posing uh, as uh, someone trustfully, someone you trust, um, and they're asking for your personal information uh, that way. Um, we've seen an uptick in these in ransomware attacks. This is when fraudsters use malicious software um, to attack your computer or your computer server. And they hold your data essentially ransom um, unless you pay money. You know, they say if you don't pay us, uh, you know, a certain amount of money. Usually, it's in cryptocurrency. They'll either delete all your sensitive information, or worse, they'll release it to the public. Um, and then phone calls. Let's talk about that for a minute, because Matt, you mentioned that you were a victim of a, of a phone call over the weekend. Um, this has been going on forever. Um, you, you, know, you get a phone call from someone claiming to work for the IRS saying you owe taxes and that 
if you don't pay within 24 hours, um, the police are going to come and arrest you. And, and that is just not the way the IRS operates. It is, it is not the way the IRS operates. Um, I, I tell uh, clients, friends, family to be extraordinarily wary of any phone call coming from someone claiming to be the IRS. Generally, the IRS will send you a letter. You will generally get a written piece of correspondence. You're not getting a phone call. And if you do get a phone call from the IRS, what I, what I advise is take the name and number down to the person and tell them you'll call them back. If they're a legitimate IRS rep employee, you call them back and have a conversation. 99% of the time it's a fraudster and they won't give you their name and they won't give you their phone number and they will hang up and you know then that it was fraud and you didn't give away any, any information. I also think it's important to report this type of fraud. Um, to the authorities, you know, it, this the only way this stuff's going to stop is if, if if law enforcement knows about it. And it's admittedly hard to crack down because a lot of these calls are coming from overseas. But I do think it's important that we, we report it um, because otherwise it's going to continue. Yeah, it's, it's it's funny you should mention that, Matt. I I happen to be for whatever reason scouring through a, a recent newspaper article and i came across some of the police blotter in a you know local uh suburban town and i would say 90 or at least 80 percent of the the major things that were reported in that police blotter happened to involve these types of scams and typically it would appear that it's a lot of praying going on on senior citizens in particular and other folks who may um, may not be technologically savvy even and and really actually think that these are true calls and and those those communities in particular the senior population seems to be uh, at per, at risk for for these types of scams let's let's then move down the list as we as we go as presented and and focus a little bit of, for a second on these uh, what the IRS calls ruses face focusing on unsuspecting victims and I know that this um, really has kind of three components uh, three core components that the IRS has published this year and to me these things really are again something that are not new but may very well be exacerbated because of the climate in which we're living in the pandemic right now. Uh, so why don't you unpack these for us, Matt? Yeah, agreed. These are not new, um, but I think they are getting worse. Um, so the three sort of key components of these, um, this portion of the Dirty Dozen, which focuses on, on unsuspecting, unsuspecting victims are fake charities, senior slash immigrant, immigrant fraud, and then offer and compromise mills and other unscrupulous tax return preparers. Um, fake charities is a pretty easy one. Um, gotta be wary of uh, any charity that's asking you for money, saying you can get a charitable contribution. Now, to be sure, there are lots of very legitimate and worthy causes to which you can contribute, but we've seen a rise in uh, just fraudulent charities organizations claiming to be a 501c3 that allow you to take a deduction. Uh, a lot of them relate to the pandemic, in fact. This is an area where you just have to be really careful, do your homework before you decide to make a contribution to an organization that you're not familiar with. You wanna make sure it is legitimate, um, that it is a legitimately recognized 
uh, tax-exempt entity by the IRS. Senior and immigrant fraud matter, you mentioned that earlier, um, this is a population, both seniors and immigrants, um, who are um, unfortunately more susceptible to falling um, victim to these types of fraudulent schemes and fraudsters are taking advantage of that. Many of these um, social media schemes, phone calls, phishing attempts are targeted at seniors or immigrants who are new to the country who may not be so uh, tuned to the, the hallmarks of fraud or uh, red flags that, that, that um, they should be looking out for. And unfortunately, these fraudsters in many, many times are succeeding in taking advantage of these um, unsuspecting groups and getting money from them or other you know, valuable personal information. Then lastly, uh, what the IRS calls offer and compromise mills, these are um, firms that say they'll resolve your tax debt for pennies on the dollar. They will help you submit an offer and compromise to the IRS, wipe off, wipe your debts clean. Now, offers and compromise are completely the legitimate tool that are used that's used by the IRS and by tax practitioners all the time to try to work out arrangements for taxpayers who can't pay their full debts to the IRS. So there's nothing uh, inherently um, questionable or concerning about offers and compromise, but what you need to be careful of is of these firms that make promises that just seem too good to be true about how they'll wipe out your tax debt. Um, and then along the lines, along the same lines, the IRS always says, and I think appropriately so, that you need to be wary of unscrupulous tax return preparers. So, a good example of that is anyone who offers to prepare your tax return for you, but won't put their name on the return. Um, that's called a ghost return. And at any time a tax return preparer is unwilling to put his or her name on the return, which is required by law, that is a big red flag, something to watch out for. So you want to, when you're looking for someone to help prepare your taxes every year, be careful, do your homework, get recommendations from people you trust and investigate the person that you're considering hiring. Uh, make sure they know what they're doing and they're, uh, you know, that they are uh, trustworthy. And there are plenty of very good and trustworthy tax preparers out there who will do it and do a good job. There are, unfortunately, there are lots of unscrupulous preparers though who will take advantage of you um, and can create more problems for you. So you just need to be wary. Thanks, Matt. And now, as we move into sort of the final area of the 2021 Dirty Dozen list, I'm struck by the fact that the first three are really the traditional fraud areas, right? They're the they're the identity theft. They're the the blatant theft of a uh, impact payment. They're uh, fake. Uh, charities and preying on seniors and immigrants who might be uniquely susceptible to falling to sort of some kind of fraudulent ruse. But what I see in the final grouping of this year's Dirty Dozen from the IRS is a bit of a more sophisticated approach to fraud, which could potentially convince a nor you know a taxpayer that has entirely legitimate motives 
you know, the difference between tax avoidance and tax evasion, right? Nobody likes paying taxes and utilizing legitimate means to offset your tax liability is a very sophisticated and entirely legitimate thing. But what I'm seeing in this final grouping of the IRS's 2021 Dirty Dozen list is what they call schemes that persuade taxpayers into unscrupulous actions. And for the first time, I see this being sort of the less obvious and a, a lot more folks might get easily sucked into one of these schemes just by virtue of the fact that on its face, they kind of present as one of these sophisticated means of of trying to to engage in a level of offset for the tax liability. So Matt, as, as we unpack these, am I correct in that characterization that this final grouping sort of is where that line is crossed between tax avoidance and tax evasion? Yes. The answer to that question is is most definitely yes it's possible um these are as i said at the outset of our discussion today these are the what the irs would call sort of the out and out tax shelters the abusive tax shelters and the first two on this list i've already briefly touched on the first being syndicated conservation easements the second being abusive micro captive arrangements these are the two I would say the two top priority tax shelters that that uh, Office of Promoter Coordination um, is focused on, and we are seeing a real significant. We are seeing a significant amount of um, IRS activity and resources being devoted to both of these arrangements. The conservation easement um, transaction, we could talk, we could spend a long time talking about that, but very briefly. This is a real estate transaction where um, you contribute a portion, not the entire um, property, but a portion of the property um, to a 501c3 charitable organization to provide a, to create what is called a conservation easement to give um, that a portion of that land um, dedicated to uh, public use and public space. Now, in general, nothing wrong with that, nothing illegal about that, but the IRS is really focused primarily on value and primary, the value of the easement and on the syndication of the easement interest. So what the IRS is focused on is on arrangements where a whole bunch of investors get together and they pool their resources and they contribute uh, this easement for conservation purposes, and in return, the investors get a charitable contribution on their tax return. Where the IRS takes issue with this is when the charitable contribution significantly exceeds the value of the charitable contribution significantly exceeds the actual value of the donated land. There have been um, already some criminal cases um, that have been filed um, in this area. There are investigations that are underway in this area. There are a ton of civil uh, cases that are being litigated, um, and there are hundreds, if not thousands, of audits being conducted by the IRS um, in this area. 
the micro it, it would strike it would strike Matt before we leave that one it would strike me that one of the central issues that needs to be uh, done in there in terms of trying to legitimize one of these is to ensure that the value is objectively appropriate correct it, it, exactly and the, and the dispute is going to be generally in these cases is the value and if the value of the donation is um, supportable then again i'm oversimplifying you, you you're probably okay um, right. it's where this value is exponentially um, larger the value of the, of the charitable contribution claimed on a tax return is, is exponentially larger than the value of the, the donated land that's when you start to cross the line potentially between civil and criminal it seems it strikes me as that that's a, a flashback to some of the mortgage fraud that went on before the great recession say pre-2008 where some of the land uh, transactions were being inflated with unrealistic valuations in order to jack up the amount that was secured from a bank loan something in along those lines but this time for purposes of trying to inflate a tax write-off that's right that's right the other one is the abusive micro captive arrangement this is an insurance arrangement so um again in theory there's nothing illegal about having a captive insurance arrangement and lots of large companies do that they own their own insurance company and that insurance company they own their own insurance company and that insurance company provides insurance to the business uh, to insure against any you know, wide variety of types of uh, claims that um, that could arise where the IRS starts to get interested is when it doesn't really look like insurance. And, and by the way, there are lots of tax benefits you can claim when you have a captive insurance, and that's why companies do this. But where the IRS starts to get interested is when it doesn't really look like an insurance, uh, doesn't really look like an insurance policy. When no claims are submitted, no claims are paid, the premiums that are paid for the insurance um, are not in line with what type of premiums you can pay market. This is when the IRS starts to look at, is this really a legitimate insurance arrangement or is this a tax strategy um, to provide tax benefits to the company that owns the um, captive insurance? This is an area where the IRS, like in the syndicated conservation easement area, the IRS is devoting a lot of resources um, and this is an area where we're going to, we expect to see significant additional uh, activity in the form of audits, tax litigation, and probably criminal activity. Haven't seen it yet, but I suspect it's coming. So rounding out list that this list of more sophisticated uh, tax schemes to essentially inflate or offset, I should say, inflate the amount of a deduction in order to offset taxable income we hear the irs talk about abusive use of the u.s malta treaty now that seems to be something fairly obscure what's that all about 
Matt, I, I, <laughs> obscure indeed. This is the first time that this has shown up on the Dirty Dozen. As far as I, I am aware and in all the years that I've been tracking the Dirty Dozen, this sounds like an incredibly obscure tax strategy. But the fact that it shows up on the Dirty Dozen shows that it, it's, it's gaining in popularity. Um, so yeah, this is, someone came up apparently with this notion that um, there are tax benefits that can be uh, recognized by US taxpayers by taking advantage of the tax treaty between the United States and Malta. And the theory is, so the theory goes, if you contribute property that has appreciated in value, whether it's say it's a stock that's increased in value or real property that's increased in value, and that would otherwise cause you to recognize a significant gain if you sold that property. Instead, you contribute that property to a pension plan in Malta, and it allows you to defer recognition of that significant gain they would otherwise have to pick up and pay taxes on. Uh, I gotta tell you, this is an obscure one <laughs> to be sure, but again, what I said a moment ago, the fact that it's showing up on the dirty dozen list shows that the IRS is seeing more, believe it or not, the IRS is seeing more and more of this being trying, trying to be used by uh, individuals who are trying to game the system. Maybe it's the new, it's the new Swiss bank account. Um, now that that's been it could solid, be. so, it could solidly be. locked down as a, as a tax avoidance uh, or tax uh, evasion uh, tool for, for several years. Rounding out then the list of the dirty dozen as it relates to these more sophisticated schemes, the IRS talks about improper claims of business credits and improper monetized installment sales. Uh, the business credit thing, I, I, I would love you to unpack for us. I, I can tell you from personal experience on the monetized installment sales, I have been seeing more and more of this pop up in my practice as um, particularly as businesses try to maybe uh, cash out and sort of exit the field through a merger or acquisition. I've seen a few of these. Um, but why don't you unpack those two final areas for us so that we can close out this discussion on the dirty dozen. Um, and, and in particular, really, this seems to be geared towards the business community. Yeah, so the first one, this improper claims of business credits, it really focuses on, I mean, there are lots of credits that the Internal Revenue Code authorizes. And again, nothing inherently improper about claiming a credit on your tax return hundreds of thousands, if not millions of taxpayers, individuals, and businesses do it every year. This focuses on a one particular credit called the, um, that, that arises out of research and experimentation. And like any other credit available under the Internal Revenue Code, you have to prove that you're entitled to claim the credit. You have to substantiate your uh, eligibility for the credit. And the IRS is seeing that uh, certain taxpayers are claiming this particular credit and they're just not, um, you know, they're not, they're not properly substantiating their eligibility um, for this particular credit. So it's, it's just another, I think it's, some, uh, it's something to be wary about when uh, you try to claim a credit on your tax return or your preparer or someone else tells you you should um, claim a particular credit, just proceed cautiously and if you do want to claim that credit, you want to make sure that you actually qualify for it. 
and can substantiate it if the IRS were to ask questions about it. And then the last item is this improper monetized installment sales. This is a little bit like the Malta scheme we talked about just a minute ago. This is when uh, you have um, appreciated property and you're trying to avoid paying the gain on that appreciated property. Again, it could be stock, it could be real property. Um, and the, this particular scam would, would, would tell you, if you want to try it, um, that you can use an intermediary, uh, a middleman, so to speak, um, to whom you would sell the property to, and then they will repay you interest only and defer your gain um, until some, some date significantly down the road. It's, again, it's a way to defer uh, reporting uh, a gain on a sale of appreciated property and then having to pay taxes on it. Um, this, this sort of intermediary type transaction is something that the IRS has seen a lot of over the years. This one is, um, again, focusing on these what they call monetized installment sales. It's sort of a a new twist on an old uh, an old uh, scheme um, that's been around for some time, but um, it it makes the dirty dozen this uh, year, I believe, for the first time. And again, I think it reflects that the IRS is seeing more and more of these, and that's why this one has this one's made it to the uh, dirty dozen for two thousand. And if I'm and if I'm not mistaken, Matt, the theory behind that would and why it would become attractive to maybe the unsuspecting is because you're trying to avoid realizing that gain all at once. Is that correct? That's exactly right. I mean, if you, if you, if you sell a piece of appreciated real estate today, you've got to recognize all that gain um, as capital gain and pay a pretty significant tax bill. And these schemes at least purport to try to defer that recognition in year one and, and to put it out, you know, put it off into the future improperly, which of course the Internal Revenue Code won't let you do. Um, but these are these are schemes that at least try to get around that uh, that well-established rule. Yeah, and in the one or two instances where I've encountered these uh, over the last couple of years, it's really been involved in where people are looking to retire and whether they're selling a business or or a piece of property or sort of a combination of of the two they're they're scaling down they're retiring they're cashing out they may have been involved in this business for 30 40 years their basis is really low because they built it over the course of decades from basically nothing and uh lo and behold they want to try to to defer that that tax hit over a period of years, and 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 I I can see why, even to the totally le legitimate and well-informed uh, person without really nefarious motives, that could be an attractive thing and and something that you definitely want to have uh, legal advice on as as you try to engage in in potentially exploring it. Yeah, and I think look, I think the takeaway from all of these is that if it sounds too good to be true, that probably is. So be careful. If someone tries to sell you one of these schemes, Matt, as Matt said, you're absolutely right. Consult with your, 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 your CPA, your attorney, proceed cautiously before you go and get involved in any of these. Um, 
these arrangements that we've just described here, uh, because if it, again, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. And to that point, Matt, the old saying goes, a couple things you can't avoid, death and taxes, right? <laughs> um, well, that's all the time that we have uh, for this episode of The Presumption of Innocence. We thank you for joining us, and we look forward to joining you joining us in the future. If you have any questions, please reach out to us. We can find us on the internet at www.foxrothschild.com. My name is Matthew Adams. I was joined today by my co-chair of the White Collar Criminal Defense and Regulatory Compliance Practice, Matthew Lee. And we look forward to exploring these hot-button topics with you in the near future. So thanks for joining us. Talk to you all soon.